0: Exceptional Marcus Piers, rock star Damien Christoph. The Wellness Summit is almost upon us and we have so many prizes and giveaways before the summit even begins this year, MP. That's right, Damo. There's a very exciting Facebook giveaway running this week only over at the Wellness Couch. One of our new exhibitors at this year's summit is Solid Technics cast iron and beautiful non-stick cookware. And they are giving away over $400 in prizes to one lucky Wellness Couch listener.
1: All you need to do is go to the Wellness Couch's Facebook page and follow the prompts. The lucky winner will
2: also receive a double pass to this year's Wellness Summit September 10-11 at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. How cool is that?
0: So go check out the Wellness Couch on Facebook to enter and remember to immerse yourself in 16 hours of powerhouse wellness with Damo, myself and over 40 other health and wellness experts. Go to thewellnesssummit.com and enter the code Summit for $100 off your ticket before they sell out. That's thewellnesssummit.com
1: Coach.com.
2: Streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat. Exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon.
0: Welcome to BackChat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. BackChat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology. Today, we're going to be exploring the health pillar of looking at your moving. As always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Another podcast. Another interesting topic. It is, actually. You because we like to segue, don't we? We like to sort of have a part A and a part B. We had that with Ted Carrick, part A, B, and C, and... uh, Today, I think we're sort of having a bit of a con- continuation from Podcast
1: 14 with Tony Maserotti. Yes, and Tony was, of course, a podiatrist, so it was the first time talking about chronic foot pain. And uh, today, we get the opinion of uh, a different health professional, an orthopedic surgeon, and get their viewpoint on it. And uh, I'm really looking forward. I think this will be really interesting.
0: Excellent. So without further ado, let's introduce Sasha. Sasha completed his schooling and medical studies in Melbourne, graduating with honours prior to undertaking his specialty training in orthopedic surgery, New South Wales. Upon completion of his orthopedic training, Sasha then undertook dedicated fellowships in foot and ankle surgery in both Australia and France, followed by a fellowship in hip and knee reconstruction in Canada. Sasha is currently practicing in Melbourne with both private and public appointments, and has a special interest in lower limb reconstructive surgery. Hi, Sasha. How are you going?
2: Hi, guys. Uh, Anthony Paul. Thank you very much uh, for having me. I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me here.
1: Oh, uh, Sasha, it's great to uh, to have you on back chat. Um, I was interested in um, Paul's little introduction there because I've uh, been very fortunate enough to have uh, my very first trip to France and you've, uh, I noticed, uh, done some of your study in France and my mother is about to leave in two weeks to go to Canada, which you've also uh, done some of your study. Tell me, is there were these the best courses in the world that you've sorted out or did you just like the venues?
2: Yeah, no, good question. Uh, so I got lucky in that I... Uh, my primary decision was based on what I wanted to do, my area of interest, and who I wanted to work with. And that just happened to take me, uh, to some very, very nice destinations. In France, I was actually based in Bordeaux, so life was, uh, not exactly tough there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Canada was, was beautiful as well in terms of scenery. So my, my reasons for, uh, selecting these destinations, uh, for my fellowships, um, just for our listeners, fellowships are sort of, Uh, You can consider them apprenticeships for surgeons. So after we finish our training, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, highlight very specific areas of interest and uh, specific people or groups that we would like to work with and work sort of as their understudy. Um, So uh, I selected uh, France for my foot and ankle training. Um, In France, I was fortunate enough to work alongside one of the pioneers of their foot surgery and essentially one of the fathers of... um, the uh, minimally invasive foot surgery techniques that we are using now. Um, and I sort of formed a relationship uh, with this surgeon during the latter part of my training in Australia and uh, was fortunate enough to be accepted to go and work with him directly. Uh, and similarly in Canada, I teamed up with a, with a group of experts in hip and knee reconstructive surgery at a, at a center where they performed somewhere between 12 to 16 joint replacements per day. So it was very high-volume work and extremely interesting. So I oh, was just very lucky that that coincided with some beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, places in the world.
0: So Sasha, your surname, so is it now, is it referred to as Mr. or Dr. firstly, with regards to an orthopedic surgeon? Can you just, What's the elaboration there?
2: Yeah, very good question. Uh, so this goes back to some of our British traditions, um, and it's actually not consistent across the country. So in The states of Victoria and South Australia, my understanding, uh, where we're a little bit more uh, British in our ways, we refer to our surgeons as Mister. So somehow we finish our medical degree, we come out as a doctor, Hmm. then we go through extra training and become surgical consultants and specialists, then we lose the doctor and become Mister. Uh, And that's just a tradition thing and it's um, uh, mainly Victoria and South Australia. Back in New South Wales where I did my training, I got my doctor title back automatically just by crossing the border.
1: <laughs> um,
2: so it, it, it dates back to the days when we had physicians and surgeons, and uh, I think the uh, surgeons were the kind of um, maybe slightly, a little bit more arrogant, and the physicians uh, sneered at them and called them Mr., and I think it's stuck since then.
0: And your heritage with your surname, rashan that's got nothing to do with French background or... Anything on like that, regards where you did some of your postgraduate?
2: No, actually, not related to that. Uh, a bit of a mixed, mixed background. My, my heritage is, is Persian. Uh, my country of birth was Italy, so I've done a bit of travelling. Um, uh, but, yeah, that, that's the background there.
0: And just finally on this, I mean, where did you get married?
2: Ah, uh, well, I'm glad you brought that up too, uh, Paul. Uh, no, I've just recently uh, had my wedding in, in uh, beautiful Italy in the Lake Como region, so uh, it was absolutely stunning and, and uh, a day, obviously, I'll, I'll never forget.
0: So, I mean, just to integrate, I mean, Tony Maserotti's Italian and, you know, there's... Searching for you it. You know, I'm sure. hunting everywhere for these Italian <laughs> connections. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we'll proceed, <laughs> Sasha. Just, <laughs> we'll <laughs> proceed.
1: just can't help bringing up the Italian yes. in it. just about every podcast. Love my, my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. All right, on with the next question then. Okay,
0: so when we talk about surgery, just for our, for our listeners in the sense of informed consent, and preparation for patients to be aware of. And I'm sure there's sort of some general guidelines. Can you just give some insights there for patients who perhaps are, when we start to talk into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, what um, things have to think about, and I'm sure they'll be explained, but what's what's on the table there?
2: Yeah, Paul, so it's a very good way to get into this topic. Uh, so whilst it may sound very simplistic and uh, basic statement, but the preparation for surgery is just as important as the operation itself in terms of achieving the best possible outcome. And I'll sort of explain what I mean by that. So even before we get to the informed consent process where a patient gets educated about the operation and sort of agrees or to proceed or otherwise, um, the very first step in performing successful surgery is actually making sure we are recommending the correct procedure for the correct diagnosis. Uh, Obviously, in the emergency setting, when we're dealing with broken bones, etc., the the pathway is usually quite easy to identify. But in our day-to-day practice and in the clinical setting, the decision to proceed down the surgical pathway really should be a journey that the patient and their practitioner or practitioners uh, take together. So this should involve a period where the practitioner monitors the patient to truly understand their condition and the impact it's having on the patient's life. Uh, Naturally, this will involve careful assessment and examination of the patient but often requires tests and investigations as well. Um, The reason I've taken a little bit of time to spell out this process is that the informed consent process would actually, in my view, be void and invalid without doing all of this. So the informed consent process involves a surgeon actually understanding the patient's condition and its impact. Before then, being able to educate the patient on the diagnosis, its likely natural history, and by that I mean what would happen if we actually did nothing at all, uh, all of the treatment alternatives, and finally the risks and benefits of the actual proposed surgery. So as you can see, there's there's more, there's much more to just telling the patients they need an operation and working out a, a suitable date uh, when a patient. Consents to surgery, they must be given every opportunity to truly understand a diagnosis as well as the pros and cons. Um, it's obviously surgery can be absolutely life-changing for patients when it's performed for the right reasons. Uh, and I obviously always stress to my patients that no matter, uh, that no operation, no matter how minor, is not without risks. Mm-hmm. but accepting these risks is very worthwhile if we can be confident that they significantly they are they are significantly outweighed by the potential benefits of the procedure so just to give you an example to quick example to illustrate that for example if you undertake an operation which has a 5% risk of complications it may not be the wisest move if the patient has a 10% chance of getting better from it yeah. but if you do the operation with a 5% risk of complications That would be very acceptable if the patient stands a 90% chance of being cured. So that's what we call the risk-benefit profile. And uh, basically, you cannot get a good understanding of that unless you have a good understanding of the patient, the impact of their disease or illness, and spend some time with them.
1: I guess it's it's very good to hear, and it's what we would expect, really, that when someone walks into a surgeon's office that it's not fait accompli that, you know, they're there to have surgery. As you said, there's a big discussion that has to take place before that. If we look at the um, example, perhaps, of, of chronic heel pain, which is what we spoke at length with Tony Maserati, our podiatrist, and I imagine this is an area that you would work a lot in as well. Most of the people that are of making decision to at least to come and see you are people who have had either chronic, meaning long time, or severe, meaning, you know, very painful heels. Um, what's some of the common causes, and what are some of the conversations you would have specific to that kind of an injury?
2: Yeah, sure, Anthony. I'll, I'll try to be, as you raise it as well. I'll try to be mindful of the uh, the excellent interview you guys did with uh, Tony, and I'll try and make this a sequel to that rather than rehashing the same information. Be cool. uh, just for our listeners, uh, so as you know, heel pain is a very common condition, and there's the statistics which suggest that it affects about one in ten people at some stage of their life, um, but It's important to note that heel pain itself is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom and we must be very careful in looking at our patients carefully to actually identify the underlying cause. So whilst the most common cause for heel pain is without doubt the condition called plantar fasciitis which Tony also uh, discussed with you uh, and I'll elaborate in a minute, uh, there are the causes we must look for and things we must exclude and for me a good way to think about the various causes of heel pain is just just to think about different structures that are in the heel or in the heel region. So I'll start with the most obvious and largest structure of all, and that's the heel bone or the calcaneus. Um, The bone itself can be a source of pain, especially in the case of uh, what we call stress fractures. Uh, The heel bone is actually the second most common site for stress fractures in the foot. Um, I won't go into the detail of stress fractures too much, that's a whole topic in itself, but that's one potential cause. The other structures around the heel, which can be sources for pain, are one the nerves around the heel. Uh, there are various nerves that run on both sides of the heel, and a couple of them in particular pass through little tunnels. Uh, at which point they can become trapped or squeezed, giving rise to pain. This is a little bit like carpal tunnel syndrome, but around the heel. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other structures in and around the heel, which again can give rise to pain are joints. So just like you have your knee joint and hip joint and large joints, which can develop arthritis, you can similarly develop the same kind of arthritis or degenerative changes in the little joints around the foot and the heel. Uh, And uh, finally, uh, there's what we call subcutaneous fat. In simple terms, there's a layer of fat just under the skin in the heel at the sole of the foot. Typically, this is quite thick and tough, uh, and it's absolutely critical in cushioning the heel bone off the ground. If this layer loses its toughness or thickness, then it's no longer effective as a cushion and the patients will experience uh, pain when the heel strikes the ground. So uh, whilst the causes for heel pain can be quite varied and relate to uh, very different and distinct structures, uh, they also often cause they are also characterized by very distinct uh, features. And this helps us to differentiate uh, between each cause without having to perform uh, sort of higher level expensive and time consuming tests in most cases. And I can get into that in a little bit.
1: I've seen a lot actually, it's interesting you said about the subcutaneous fat thing. Is that something that you see much more in elderly people? That's certainly been my experience uh, in just people who have uh, foot pain. That's the older people that have very thin, often subcutaneous fat.
2: You're absolutely right. Yes, uh, Anthony. So uh, as we age, uh, unfortunately, our cells and uh, the structure of our our tissues lose their structure a little. That includes bones, muscles, tendons, and as well as the fat that normally sits under the skin. So as that fat atrophies or becomes thin and weak, uh, and it is usually related, is age-related, just the degenerative changes, uh, that can then cause the pain.
0: Tough question for you, Sasha. When you're giving percentages to patients, we talked about a bit earlier. I mean, that's, it's got to be certain elements of arbitrary nature to those as well, because I mean, if you're saying there's a seventy percent success rate, eighty percent success rate, is that is that quoted from literature or experience or combination of literature plus um, individual experience from a from a surgeon's experience of their personal results on that, you know, how, how do you sort of formulate that? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, good question. So we um, obviously mindful. We wouldn't just throw out numbers. Yeah. Uh, it's not a guess type thing. Yeah. Um, most of the time, nearly always, whenever we quote numbers like that, they're based on uh, strong scientific evidence and literature. So just to give you an example, uh, a group or a hospital will want to study the effectiveness of uh, hip replacements, for example. Mm-hmm. So they'll gather as many patients as they can because the more number of patients you have, the more accurate the results. Uh, And they'll assess these patients before and after surgery and they'll have various markers of success. Obviously, one is just pain relief. Um, Other other markers uh, will be a little bit sort of easier to measure such as range of movement, degrees of movement uh, and things like that and x-ray findings. So um, there are many studies like that performed on just about every condition you can think of and procedures that we commonly do because we always want to know how well we're doing. Uh, And so typically these statistics are quoted from literature and evidence.
0: Yep, gotcha. Uh, But then I suppose like everything, then you you go through your dissection and then suddenly you might find stuff you've never seen before. Oh, you know, the anatomy might be varied, etc., etc., which may, I suppose, change that prognosis potentially or... Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no,
2: again, very good point. This is... I guess it's one of the aspects of medicine and yeah. surgery. Uh, yeah. And as health practitioners, uh, we must accept, acknowledge, and explain to our patients that the, the body and each patient is different. Um, anatomy is different. Uh, people's perceptions are different. For example, people's perceptions of pain. Uh, and so uh, definitely no two patients are the same. And in fact, no two limbs are the same. You can perform the same operation on the left side and then do the same operation on the right side, You do it technically the same or, or find some differences. And uh, there is no guarantee that the outcome will be exactly the same. So um, uh, we always give patients information and statistics. They're based on the evidence that we have. But uh, all, first of all, there are always exceptions to the rule and uh, the, there's a great degree of variance between patients.
0: It's, it's really interesting, Anthony. I, I mean, we look at a lot of in- extrinsic factors, don't we? We look at posture, movement externally, um, how the joints feel when we assess them with palpation, mm-hmm. etc. But what Sasha's talking about is that sort of intrinsic, you know, when we cut through the skin tissue, we go in, it's it's, it's such a
1: bigger, a deeper level, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that I was interested, uh, what Sasha was talking about in terms of the statistics, and this yeah. is what, I don't know if you find this in practice, but one of the, um, the challenges I think that uh, patients come with is the fear of the unknown. Mm. So having a diagnosis, oh, now I can give this name to my issue and mm. having a, and I know sometimes, um, particularly in the area of oncology and cancer, that maybe there's criticisms of giving, you know, how long you can live if we expect you to live okay. to this. problem yeah. yeah. Know, people might just see it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I think people like, like to, things to be broken down for them. Like They need to get their head around you know what their problem is, what yep. what their options are, what the percentage is for A versus B, and I think with that kind of information and empowerment, they can sort of move forward and have, have a great greater chance of having success whichever way they go.
0: Yeah, excellent. No, that's really interesting. In regards, at all. So, regards, red flags. So, <clears> what are some red flags? Maybe you can explain what red flags means for our lay listeners, and uh, what 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 red flags to watch out for, Sasha.
2: Sure. So for me and uh, amongst health practitioners, red flags for us are things that uh, ring alarm bells. You can think of it that way. Uh, Things not to miss and things that can be potentially dangerous Uh, So as a general rule, with any condition, and at the moment we're talking about heel pain, uh, patients should see their health practitioner as soon as possible to have things investigated. Um, Even if it is a very simple cause for heel pain, the sooner you have an accurate diagnosis, the sooner the correct treatment can be applied and the greater chance you have of achieving a good outcome. However, with regards to heel pain, there are some features uh, which can increase the urgency of the situation, Uh, in particular... Uh, If patients find that their heel pain is associated with generalized symptoms such as fevers, chills, sweats, uh, significant loss of weight, pain in other areas of the limb or the lower back, uh, particularly pain that shoots up and down the limb, uh, any change to the motor function of the limb, and by that I mean weakness or difficulty moving the limb, uh, particularly when there's a distinct difference between the two sides, Uh, acute symptoms or pain in multiple joints around the body associated at the same time with their heel pain Uh, and obviously swelling and redness of the foot Um, in most of the common causes of heel pain. We don't typically get a lot of that. So uh, whilst most causes of heel pain are certainly not particularly dangerous or life-threatening, there have been some reports of rare things such as tumours or infections which can present in the heel region Uh, And any of the features I've just mentioned above should alert patients to seek uh, urgent attention. Uh, I'm personally yet to come across very serious cases, but I always put these in my must not forget list and I do not hesitate in testing for them if there are any unusual features in the patient's presentation. And finally, uh, sometimes we need to look further up the leg and again I think Tony mentioned this uh, to identify the source of heel pain. Uh, I'll just mention it briefly, but the spine absolutely can be a source for the heel pain. The long nerves, which give us feeling around the heel and the foot and the ankle, uh, actually originate up at the spine level and a pressure on these nerves uh, up there from things such as a bulging disc or arthritis in the spine can certainly manifest as heel pain. Uh, Typically, however, this pain is also associated with radiation down the back of the leg and the buttock and uh, and, and, uh, features such as that
1: um and that's all fantastic um we've, you've mentioned a few things there we've gone through you've mentioned three things in terms of uh, possible stress fractures being a source of heel pain a, a nerve entrapment like a tarsal tunnel syndrome the subcutaneous fat issue and then of course all the potential nasties that while they're rare you know you and whoever's seeing the patient needs to be very aware of those things um and of course, we're about to speak. I'm going to get into in a bit more detail about plantar fasciitis, but you obviously have to do a series of tests to distinguish and make your diagnosis. What's a typical barrage of tests that you would do for a um, someone who presents with chronic heel pain?
2: Sure. Um, I find that just based on the patient's history of symptoms and the findings of a thorough physical examination, the health practitioner is often able to identify the most likely underlying cause, and that's important. Uh, because it helps to direct the actual investigations and the tests we run. Um, as you know, there are many tests and things you can investigations you can run and uh, you don't want to be sort of barking up, up the wrong tree. Um, so, uh, and Tony, during his interview, he touched on this nicely and outlined the specific characteristics of heel pain that's associated with plantar fasciitis, for example. Um, so it's important to have a good idea before running tests. Uh, this makes sure that... Uh, only the appropriate necessary tests are ordered and will potentially save patients time, money and even unnecessary radiation. Common tests that I order for heel pain would include a plain weight-bearing x-ray of the foot and ankle. This is a very simple test that's quick uh, and easy to obtain and helps us check whether the bones or joints uh, are potential causes for the pain. The X- x-rays can help us pick up things like fracture and arthritis of the small bones of the foot. Uh, Another very easy, simple and quick test uh, to obtain uh, is an ultrasound scan. Uh, Given the plantar fascia is is a structure, it's like a rubber band or a cord-like structure that's just under the skin, the ultrasound scans are often quite good at looking at this. Uh, And on ultrasound, we look at both thickness and integrity of the plantar fascia. So in plantar fasciitis, this structure is usually thickened and sometimes we even see tears in uh, the plantar fascia. And uh, finally, MRI scan, it's a very common test performed for heel pain. It's very informative in that that it shows uh, bones, nerves, tendons, ligaments, joints, the plantar fascia itself, the plantar fat pad, which is something we've mentioned. But when ordering this test, we really must first have a good idea of what we're looking for. Uh, It helps the radiologist actually focus on a specific area and it makes the test a lot more useful uh, in diagnosing a specific cause. Uh, But there are many other specific tests that are less common and should only be ordered if the physician or practitioner has a strong suspicion of the diagnosis. And they include, for example, nerve conduction studies, which are done for entrapment of nerves, as you mentioned, such as tarsal tunnel. A CT scan to check the actual underlying bony anatomy of the foot and heel. Sometimes you have what we call coalition or the bones in the foot are fused together in areas where they shouldn't be. Uh, imaging of the spine if you're considering nerve root compression at the spine level and obviously other tests such as bone scan and blood tests are uh, looking for uh, infection or very minor stress fractures which can be missed uh, by other tests.
0: So I'd imagine, Sasha, you'd see more chronic heel pain problems versus more acute pain, uh, heel pain problems. So I suppose once these patients have arrived to you, a fair few of those tests have been done?
2: Yes, that's right. They often do come with a range of varied tests. Uh, some have been uh, sort of useful in showing something or even useful in excluding something. Um, so it's, it can be helpful and it can also be a little bit confusing when a range of uh, varied tests are ordered because uh, just like with uh, the statistics we were talking about, when you order a test, you may find something uh, that's there on, as an abnormality on the test but is not actually a cause for the pain. Yeah. Yeah, so that's very can, can, confusing and that's why we need to direct the test based on the findings of our examination and history. So just ordering random tests is a little bit like throwing dart shots in the dark. One of them may hit uh, but it may not be the correct uh, target.
0: And just in the thinking of moving if a patient had a CT scan to an MRI, What's yes. the sort of thinking of, 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 of the um, value of doing that?
2: Sure. So a simple way to think about it is CT scans are excellent for looking at bones. And MRIs also look at bones, but they are particularly good at looking at soft tissues. So if you're considering a bony problem in the foot, which would be fracture, arthritis, or the less common causes such as coalition and fusion of the bones, you'd do a CT scan. If you want to check the soft tissues, and the plantar fascia itself is in the category of soft tissues because it's like a ligament, uh, and things like tendons, even nerves, uh, they are uh, much better investigated with an MRI scan.
0: Gotcha. So on the topic of plantar fasciitis, uh, what are the characteristic features of that for perhaps a patient who may be listening to this podcast thinking... I'm waking up with some heel pain or I've got some heel pain?
2: Sure. The plantar fascia, as we mentioned, just to touch on the anatomy, it's like a cord uh, which runs on the sole of the foot just under the skin. It runs from the heel bone to the area of the ball of the foot just under the base of the toes. And whenever we put itis at the end of a word, typically it refers to inflammation of that structure. So just based on the name, you would assume that plantar fasciitis means inflammation of the plantar fascia. In some cases, that is true. However, we've had studies where the plantar fascia itself has been examined, and rather than inflammation, uh, we've seen that it's just had degenerative changes uh, in this ligament-type structure. This is very important to acknowledge as it probably explains why not all cases of plantar fasciitis respond to cortisone injections, which are essentially designed to treat inflammation. Uh, It doesn't mean we've got the diagnosis wrong. It potentially means that inflammation is not the main Uh, factor in that patient's presentation. Uh, For uh, various reasons, Um, the plantar fascia becomes tight and stressed like a tight band in the sole of the foot and this is typically the cause for the discomfort and the pain. This can be related to the shape of the foot, the type of activity the patient is doing, a change in footwear, the walking patterns uh, or even significant overloading of the foot from uh, significant weight gain, for example, and calf tightness. Uh, the characteristic pain for plantar fascia is something we refer to as startup pain. And I think you also mentioned this with Tony. Patients typically describe the pain as being worse first thing in the morning or after an extended period of rest, for example, uh, when they first get up to walk after watching a two or three hour movie. Uh, the patient uh, typically the pain typically subsides after. Brief period of walking, but then again, is exacerbated after extended periods of weight bearing. This pain is usually felt just under the heel, more towards the arch of the foot rather than the outer border. Uh, And again, obviously, there are exceptions to the rule, and patients with plantar fasciitis can present with atypical pain. This is where the investigations become quite useful.
1: So, typically, by the time uh, a person sees you, and let's go make the assumption this person now has plantar fasciitis, they've typically failed with their care, with their, you know, primary contact practitioner, whether that's a podiatrist, chiropractor, physio or whatever. So you're the next level up. Where do you go with someone who's, you know, failed with more conservative care? What, what's your first line of, uh, of approach with this?
2: So that's very important. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of patients come to me and they come to me saying that they've failed conservative care. My first approach to that is actually to make sure that they have had the correct conservative care. Yeah, right. um, so the mainstay for plantar fasciitis is still conservative or non-operative therapy. And uh, for me, the key factor in the success of this is early correct diagnosis and a multidisciplinary approach to manage it often needs different people involved. Um, so it's crucial to involve, for example, uh, podiatrists, chiropractors, physiotherapists, in no, no specific order, of course. <laughs> um, Did you say chiropractor uh,
0: before physiotherapy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's right. uh, we're, friends with, we're friends with everyone. That's all good. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's right. Uh, so with the correct non-operative therapy applied correctly and the patient uh, being compliant and diligently following instructions, we find that 90 to 95% of patients achieve an excellent outcome within 12 months just going back to those statistics again, yeah, yeah. Um, which brings me to my point that patience is absolutely key. So whilst almost 90% of patients will have a successful outcome, the time to achieve this is highly variable, it can range from just a few weeks or even years. I'll correct that. Or even up to one year or just over a year. Okay. Uh, the most common methods of non-operative treatment would include stretching exercises, which are designed to stretch the calf, as well as the plantar fascia itself. And this is really the backbone of the therapy. Uh, Simple oral analgesia, which not only help patients with their uh, day-to-day pain from the plantar fascia, but will also help them to perform the prescribed physical therapy. Uh, Massage, shockwave therapy, and obviously cortisone injections. Uh, These should be typically provided, the cortisone injections, under ultrasound guidance so that the injection is applied to the correct region. Uh, During this, the other key factor is that during this period of treatment, the patient should be under careful and regular watchful eye of their health practitioner or practitioners. Uh, Typically, when patients come and say the conservative or non-operative therapy has failed, I find that there's been a history of some contact uh, with a health practitioner uh, and then the contact has stopped after about two or three sessions and the patient comes to me and says, well... I had some exercises for a brief period and it didn't get better. And so here I am having failed conservative therapy. For me, that's not a failure of conservative therapy. It just hasn't been applied in the correct environment. Uh, So for a very small percentage of patients, that 5 to 10% who go through the correct treatment, non-operative treatment, and do not achieve a satisfactory outcome for all of the above, then uh, we do consider surgery. Um, I can get into that in more detail in a little bit, but essentially the surgery is is aimed at releasing the plantar fascia or the tight band in the foot to relieve that tension.
0: Anthony, the reason why I got, as we say, Mister Roshan on on the show, is because I heard him speak recently, and he spoke to a group of kairos, and uh-huh. what his message that came across was a real good example how we probably get. There's a bit of a misnomer about the fact that a patient goes to a surgeon. he's the list. We get them in, we cut them up, and we move on sort of scenario. And that's why I really loved Sas' Sasser's, Sasser's message back then and more so as well today because what he's demonstrated there is that there's a lot of stuff that goes beforehand And even to make sure that there is the correct failure of conservative therapy. Because, you know, we know, we see patients, we may give a prognosis saying, well, this problem here from a back perspective or a foot perspective is going to be a four to six week type recovery. Mm. And a patient might see us for one week, we haven't got a result, and they go, well, the Cairo failed. Mm. Well, actually, no, it's the fact that the... The natural history and the prognosis is you need to be doing these exercises or this treatment for this period of time. And once you've done that, if it hasn't worked, well, that's we have to concede We've got to look at something.
1: What do you think? Oh, well, I think it's very important, especially with chronic conditions. You know, whether yeah. we're talking about a plantar fasciitis, we were talking about a uh, rotator cuff injury, you know, these things that tend to have long healing times. It's uh, sometimes seeing, uh, whether it's a second opinion, and certainly in the case of uh, getting a specialist opinion, sometimes it's just that... The confidence of knowing, okay, hang in there. You know where this is the track that we're going to go down, and then only if that fails, then we do do we step it up. So yeah, that's that's important.
0: So in cases where you describe where you feel the patient hasn't gone through an appropriate length of conservative therapy, what, what do you say to those patients specifically, Sasha? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So um, you've uh, got to sort of take a step back and sometimes start at ground zero again. Um, Obviously, first and foremost, you want to make sure that the findings are consistent with the diagnosis. So go back again and make sure, did we get the diagnosis right? Um, Most cases we have. And then go back and try and find out where things fell apart. And it's absolutely not about blaming the patient or the practitioner. Uh, sometimes it's just the failure of, of uh, communication to mm-hmm. get the message across or understanding of mm-hmm. the patient. And basically, if, if those are the factors, then uh, and you reconfirm the diagnosis and you're happy with that, then I start again. Uh, if the patient had a good relationship with their previous therapist and practitioner, they absolutely go back. And however, with new understanding, about the time that it takes, the patient that it require, patients that it requires and the diligence with the prescribed therapy. Uh, or sometimes it might need a, a change of practitioner or an involvement of a new practitioner or a whole team, for example.
0: And, and what's protocol? Do you write a letter back to their attending primary contact practitioner or do you just write back to their GP? What's the gen- general protocol there?
2: Yeah, look, there's no, uh, there's no hard and fast rule. Communication is key. And I typically like to communicate with uh, everyone who has been or is still involved in that patient's care for this particular issue and episode. Uh, So, yeah, if there's a previous practitioner, a a GP, anyone who has regular contact with the patient must be involved in the communication chain because probably the most important thing is that we provide a consistent and common message. Again, patients uh, would... It be excused for being confused if they go to different practitioners and they're being given different information and conflicting uh, advice. Uh, That is another reason why conservative therapy can fail. So we need to be on the same page as a team.
0: And regards to traps with how plantar fasciitis is actually treated, you got some um, thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I sort of might sound like a bit of a broken record and repeating myself, but I would again go back and say number one trap is achieve uh, delay in achieving a correct diagnosis so by just letting things drag on uh, potentially a very treatable problem an acute treatable problem can become a chronic problem that's difficult to treat Uh, the diagnosis is still the same but it just becomes harder to treat we need to make sure we're not missing anything by checking the patient's history performing the correct tests and excluding other potential causes so we may be treating plantar fasciitis um one good example I'll sort of point out is, for example, the heel fat pad atrophy. So that's, an, that's a condition where you absolutely do not want to apply a cortisone injection because it can make the problem worse. So that's where the correct diagnosis is very important. And sometimes we just need to make sure we revisit the issue. If things are changing, the patient's not responding to the therapy, that they're actually compliant with the therapy, then, then is there another cause that we're missing? Um, Again, the key thing is regular and frequent contact with their health practitioner and the team of therapists. Uh, And that's really, the importance there is reinforcing the message to the patient, monitoring the progress. It's one thing that um, careful monitoring of the progress is very important because patients can get frustrated. Uh, They don't see day-to-day improvements. But, for example, if they're having uh, weekly second weekly uh, or even monthly uh, reviews by their practitioner uh, that is a much easier way to monitor and record progress for example if they're doing calf and stretching exercises the patient may not be seeing the day-to-day improvements but if they check their month-to-month measurements with their practitioner uh, then they will see definite uh, improvement in the numbers for example And the other trap I would probably warn against is jumping straight into a cortisone injection. Even if we're happy with the diagnosis of plantar fasciitis based on our findings and our investigations, um, I would probably keep the cortisone injection up the sleeve for down the track if everything else is failing. I like to follow a ladder of least invasive therapy to the most invasive therapy and an injection into the foot. I consider an invasive treatment. It can be effective but uh, it is often not required as the first step.
1: I have heard patients before with cortisone injections who have uh, they've had one and it hasn't quite worked so well and then they've had another one and then it's done much better and of course the reverse also. Is there many cases where you'll do more than one or multiple cortisone injections?
2: Yep, that's absolutely uh, true. That does happen. And again, there can be reasons for that. Sometimes, as I said, the cortisone injections are applied. The plantar fascia is an easy structure to to find clinically when you're examining a foot, but I would still advise against applying a cortisone injection without ultrasound guidance. So sometimes injections are applied but not particularly applied to the uh, specific area of the fascia that's thickened, injured, or has a tear in it, for example.
1: Yes.
2: Um, so making sure it's done under imaging guidance or an ultrasound is, is crucial. And yes, you do find variable response and, and, um, sometimes that's hard to explain. I've recently seen a patient who had plantar fasciitis on one side, had one injection and, uh, had complete resolution of his symptoms on that side. Uh, and is completely asymptomatic. Now he's having Similar symptoms on the opposite side, and they're not responding to the uh, cortisone injection. So, um, as I said, that that probably relates to uh, how much of the plantar fasciitis is actually an inflammatory problem. So, it's, if it's not primarily inflammatory, the cortisone injection is unlikely to bring about significant improvement.
0: And, and Sasha, is that cortisone injection in your scope of practice? Is that something you administer, or is it something that you don't do at all, or as a surgeon?
2: Sure. I, um, I, even I prefer to send the patients to a radiologist yep. uh, uh, who has an ultrasound machine, who has been trained, uh, has extensive training in using the machine to find the appropriate structures under the skin and apply the injection to exactly where it needs to be. So uh, I've moved away from, from doing it myself just because I find it's much more accurate in the hands of, uh, in the hands of people who know how to use a, an ultrasound machine.
1: Okay, great. Okay, Thank you. Okay, so now, we, now Mr. Smith, has, uh, he's had his chronic plantar fasciitis. Uh, we're very confident in the diagnosis. He's been very compliant and diligent with his uh, exercises. He's seen the right people from a conservative uh, point of view as, as, in terms of practitioners, but plantar fasciitis is still severe and persistent. Where do we go surgically with Mr. Smith?
2: So Mr. Smith is now a good candidate for surgery uh, because he has tried everything, he has been diligent with everything and uh, we have the diagnosis correct and unfortunately that therapy has failed. So this is one setting where uh, we do look to surgery as a, a possible solution and the operation performed typically is called a plantar fascia release. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the major underlying problem is that the plantar fascia is tight, thickened, and may or may not be associated with the inflammation. So plantar fascia release essentially involves cutting that cord or the plantar fascia to decrease the tension in that region of the foot and the tension in that particular ligament, if you'd like to think of it as a ligament. Uh, Traditionally, the procedure was taught and performed as an open surgery, and what I mean by that is we actually actually create an incision to open things up and the incision is made along the inner border of the foot near the arch. Uh, More recently, we've been performing the plantar fascia release using an endoscopic method, which is what most people refer to as keyhole surgery. This method involves making one very small incision of about three to five millimeters on each side of the foot close to the heel. Uh, We then use these small incisions to pass a small camera through. The camera allows us to visualise the plantar fascia on the TV screen and under this vision we pass a small blade through uh, the thickened band and release the fascia or or cut the band. Um, Now people think, okay, the plantar fascia is probably one of the structures that helps us support the arch of the foot and that is correct. So in theory, cutting the band may risk flattening of the arch and that's why we typically don't cut the entire band through what we will perform is called a partial release, typically about three quarters of the way through. Um, The reason why we develop the endoscopic or keyhole technique is that we usually like to avoid creating scars on the foot, particularly close to the sole of the foot. Uh, Scars in any region of the body can become painful or sensitive, and especially if you're walking on it, that can be a major problem. So the endoscopic technique has been quite a breakthrough in that. It's also associated with the with less pain post-operatively because the scar is smaller and uh, slightly faster recovery.
0: And what about the post-operative sort of management there in the sense when sure. you, yeah, what's what's the advice there and in regards, yep. you know, if there's brace support, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Yeah, typically the procedure is a day procedure. So it's done and the patient goes home. Uh, Immediately, post-operatively, we apply a special shoe uh, for the foot. It's just like a stiff-soled sandal, if you like to think of it that way. And that just protects the, the foot and the incisions for the first uh, 10 days to two weeks. Uh, patient is able to walk on it using that special shoe. They just got, have to apply typical wound care instructions in the immediate post-op setting or immediate post-op phase. Uh, to prevent infection. Uh, we typically see the patient approximately 10 days to 14 days after surgery to just remove stitches and check the little wounds. After that stage, uh, they're pretty free, uh, they're usually quite comfortable and pretty free to weight bearers tolerated. Uh, the, the therapy that they were, uh, performing preoperatively, uh, can easily continue postoperatively and, and will help in maintaining the, particularly the calf flexibility, uh, after surgery.
1: Um, once, Sasha, you've made the decision to do a plantar fascia release, is it essentially the same technique or do you vary where you cut dependent on where the, the plantar fascia seems to be damaged?
2: Uh, good question. We typically perform the surgery in the same region just about every time. Yeah. And, the, and the reason for that is that it's, it's the safest place to release the fascia right. in terms of potential damage to uh, nearby blood vessels or nerves or muscles and tendons and, thing, and the important structures in the sole of the foot. So uh, we would typically perform the release in the same area of the plantar fascia, uh, regardless of what we're seeing on the uh, ultrasound and MRI, etc.
1: And so Mr. Smith has now had his surgery. What what statistics are we going to give him? What's his uh, chance of recovery and how long before he's uh, up and walking about again?
2: Nice, nice question. <laughs> um, you know, so- Mr. Mr. Smith
1: <laughs> is very, I'm very concerned oh. about Mr. Smith.
2: I want to make sure we get it right for him. Did,
0: did you realize that he were, Mr. Smith was a statistician, <laughs> yeah. right? So he's walked in here and <laughs> poor Sasha, he's, got, he's got his stats already there and and he's uh, ready for uh, the, the answer to this question.
2: Yeah, Mr. I, I imagine Mr. Smith probably would quote the statistics to me before I had a chance to explain <laughs> yes. <the> it <thing>. But <laughs> uh, Google University says. As I said, we allow the patients to weight bear and walk immediately. Uh, the special shoe is uh, worn for the first 10 to 14 days. After that, the patients are usually comfortable enough to go to their regular shoes. Usually yeah. it's a supportive type shoe, like a sports shoe, um, that's going to support the foot and the arch. Uh, and in terms of uh, weight-bearing and exercises, it's really a matter of, um, of their pain. And whenever they're comfortable enough, they are free to perform uh, exercises and their usual duties. Uh, there's no real period post-operatively where we have to protect them or immobilise them or stop things moving. Uh, so it's quite good in terms of getting back on track uh, almost immediately after surgery. In terms of statistics of the operation, uh Again, just quoting the literature evidence, uh, it's typically associated with a successful outcome in about 70% of patients. So it's not up there at our 95% success rate operation, and that is one of the reasons we don't jump to surgery the first time we see these patients. Uh, when we know that the conservative measures have a 90 to 95% success rate, uh, we know we're going to fix most patients down that path. And of those 5 to 10% that fail there, then we know we're going to have approximately 70% chance of success with operation.
0: And what about with the age of the patient, Sasha? I mean, if you've got a 40-year-old versus a 60-year-old, is that Mr. Smith who's you know changing his statistics around a bit? Does that change his numbers? Is it? Do you have a more favorable outcome with someone who's younger, better recuperative powers versus someone to, who's older? Or what's the, what's the thoughts there?
2: To be honest, the, the, the short answer is no. Um, uh, patients, uh, older patients, are just as likely to have a good outcome as younger patients. So we haven't noticed a difference in outcome based on patient's age.
0: Okay. And what about some more recent treatment modalities that have been used? Uh, If you can explain perhaps PRP and some others that are uh, being currently explored.
2: Sure. So sticking to the actual diagnosis of plantar fasciitis, uh, there there are some recent treatment modalities which are non-invasive and very safe and these include, for example, shockwave therapy um, where shockwaves are, are administered to the, to the sole of the foot, to the plantar fascia and, and they, I've had patients who have had reasonable success with that uh, and I'm quite happy to explore that path given it's, um, it's uh, unlikely to cause any harm to the patient and it's non-invasive. As you mentioned, there are other treatment modalities such as PRP injections in that same category are stem cell injections or blood injections. Um, I understand there, have been, there has been a lot of media attention on these topics such as stem cells and PRP and blood injections and there's been a lot of excitement around this topic. Uh, in theory, uh, there is some good explanations of why and how it may work by administering uh, the blood cells or plasma or stem cells to a region which is degenerative uh, and uh, inflamed, the theory is that it helps to regenerate that tissue back to more normal tissue. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to be careful here. That's a very broad understanding, and it's a somewhat vague understanding. Uh, To date, uh, we haven't had any strong scientific studies or strong scientific evidence to prove that these therapies uh, actually work. We have had anecdotal evidence, which just means individual patients coming back saying, I had a good result. We've also had patients coming back saying, I haven't had any uh, symptom relief, any pain relief uh, from the PRP or stem cell injection. Uh, The other thing I just want to bring to uh, everyone's attention is that the Because of the excitement around this, I guess you can call it new technology with stem cells, uh, it's been applied quite widely to other areas of the body such as injections into the knee or other joints in the body uh, and also for cosmetic reasons. There have been some recent uh, reports of of bad outcomes not necessarily related to the foot or or joints of the body uh, and these are being investigated and uh, quite recently over the last few days or week, The Australian College of Sports Physicians has actually released a position statement uh, which uh, our listeners can find on the website of the Australian College of Sports Physicians uh, which uh, outlines their view of of stem cell therapy uh, in that it is still at what we call an experimental phase. So it's not a proven therapy, uh, but it is something that we're looking at in terms of its effectiveness. Uh, that's really the advice I would give to patients if and when they're considering this type of treatment. Uh, it is still essentially experimental and, and unproven.
0: It's really interesting to, in today's world of evidence-based medicine, Sasha, you know, there's uh, callings for you know, high-level evidence, RCTs, et cetera, et cetera, for us to do anything. In, the, in light of, you know, PRP and, you know, really some sort of low-level evidence... Is there sort of, is there elements within political medicine, for instance, saying that these shouldn't be utilized at all because of the fact that the evidence is of a low level?
2: There are definitely uh, groups calling or on that side of the fence and, yes. and calling for that. And that is a very reasonable approach uh, in terms of what we administer to patients, we want to have uh, good evidence good scientific evidence behind that decision and behind that uh, treatment. Having said that, we're also always trying to evolve our practice and evolve technology and come up with new therapies uh, with the ultimate aim of helping patients. So we just have to be careful how we apply these new techniques and new therapies. Uh, And I would say with regards to this topic in particular, I personally would be more comfortable if we had uh, strong scientific trials and strong evidence to support its effectiveness before it became uh, common practice and used widely.
0: And, and I think it's interesting because, and I suppose the safety profile is a critical element here, isn't it? Because I'd imagine, too, there'd be a lot of plateauing of moving things forward if we find that if we have to run long clinical trials over years and years and years, then a lot of this stuff, I suppose, won't be out there to be explored Obviously, a patient needs to have informed consent to be explained. This is the protocols. These are the risks. You know, intellectual honesty stating that maybe the the evidence is low here, but if the patient wants to uh, go through with what's been advised as an application or treatment, but the, the, the safety profile is the critical part, I'd imagine, because, you know, if the safety profile starts to be questioned, then that sort of experimentation based on anecdotal evidence becomes... Perhaps a bit risky. Is that how it's perceived?
2: That you, you've absolutely nailed it, uh, Paul. That's, that's exactly how it is perceived and how it should be. Um, up until you know, our, our primary underlying uh, ethical principle as health practitioners is first do no harm. Mm-hmm. So when we're treating a patient, uh, the first thing we want to make sure is we're not actually harming them. And that's where the safety profile of treatments comes in, as you mentioned. So it's, it's good and well to apply a treatment and say to the patient that, uh, look, this may or may not help you. If it's not a harmful treatment, then potentially the worst case scenario is that you have the treatment and you get no better. But at the very least, you get no worse. Uh, and that's sort of my thinking when I apply Uh, a treatment protocol to patients and why I start from the least invasive, um, taking, uh, doing some massage and doing some exercises, for example, and then step it up from there to more invasive therapies which are associated with potential risk or you can consider it potential harm. Yeah, I
1: think it's a very... You know, common sense and uh, and balanced approach. Now, one of the things we like to do on back chat, uh, Sasha, is to find out a little bit about the person and not just uh, your depth of knowledge and expertise, which you've uh, certainly demonstrated mm, tonight. Very so, um, very thank you for that, firstly. But uh, I imagine uh, in your uh, journey as a um, you know eventually becoming a, an orthopedic surgeon, but along the way, I suppose. You would have had experiences, maybe even an impactful pivotal experience that you know made you decide look that's the direction I want to take my life if, is can you recall anything in particular that sort of set you off in the direction that you' that you're on
2: sure uh, first of all thank you for your, for your kind remarks um, <laughs> uh, so it's a tough one uh, you know our surgical training is such a lengthy thing and is essentially ongoing for the entire uh, for our entire career, and there are many pivotal moments and many pivotal characters and mentors that we come across. But look, if I if I had to choose a a moment in time, I would uh, probably have to go back to the day I actually left Melbourne um, to commence my five years of orthopedic training in New South Wales. Uh, until that time, I'd been quite happy completing all my education, uh, essentially in a comfort zone bubble in my. Uh, beloved hometown of Melbourne Uh, so with some degree of reluctance and trepidation uh, I left Melbourne to embark on this five-year training program which uh, in New South Wales which essentially took me from Sydney to Newcastle and even further north to Port Macquarie uh, working at various hospitals typically our training terms are six months so I was kind of moving every six months Um, but what I was actually exposed to during this time I think has really shaped me as an orthopedic surgeon as a health practitioner uh, in addition to the incredible mentorship and training uh, this experience really opened my eyes to the value of learning by variety I realized that really no matter where I went or who I worked with there was always something to learn uh, surgically is typically surgery surgery is typically a science uh, but can also be an art I've realized and uh, quite often successful surgery is dependent upon having a sufficiently full toolbox of surgical techniques in order to deal with unusual or challenging situations uh, when and if they occur. So having discovered this, uh, following my interstate experience, I then uh, continue to broaden my experiences with time spent working in the United States and obviously France and Canada, which we've already touched upon. Uh, Whilst I've now returned to Melbourne to bring this experience back home, the the point of ongoing learning uh, through varied experiences and interaction with, with uh, people of uh, different backgrounds has not been lost and I continue to seek valuable opportunities both locally and abroad. Uh, this has been a key point to my success, I think, thus, thus far and, and a component of practice uh, that I knew very little about before moving away. Uh, I was kind of dragged away kicking and screaming, but it ended up being the best thing that happened to me, I think.
1: You do a lot of growing up, I reckon, when you leave home. I've found that with uh, my experience of life and just about everyone's. You know, there's that that bubble that you were talking about. Um, it's a fantastic place to be in terms of security and love and all that. But you do your growth when you're uh, when you're challenged, don't you?
0: I think when you're stretched and pushed and, you know, suddenly you have to make your own decision. We're not talking professionally here. We're talking, you know. Life skills. Life skills, those sort of components. But, you know, it's very interesting what Sessions described though, isn't it? Because there's a lot of messages in what he's talked about here. It's... You know the key part of mentorship. You know mm. we've seen in practice, and you know, you've been going a bit more than me, Anthony. Oh, for, Forty-five s- years. <laughs> wait Sorry. a second. Wait a second. Oh, <laughs> um, but you see that that sort of role of mentorship you've described in previous podcasts. You know with Kevin Olbrick and yeah, that's right. the importance of his time with you, and and it's helped shape your career and the, and the extra great stuff you've done for our profession, um, your leadership roles, and the mentorship is something which is. Um, it's more than ever important nowadays, and I think what what Sash has described, and also some of his other work too. Like, um, can you even elaborate a little bit with the public hospital system too, Sash? You talked a bit before before air before we were on air about you know working the public versus private system, because uh, can you just share some of those pearls there? Because that was I thought that was really fascinating what you described.
2: Yeah, sure. So when we um, obviously. The entirety of our training is largely uh, focused in the public hospital setting where we work with uh, consultants and specialists and essentially train under their guidance. Uh, Once you finish your training, you have the options or options of uh, going into private practice or remaining in public practice or a combination of both, and uh, I think – Whilst it's nice to go into private practice and essentially you become your own boss and it's a very nice feeling and uh, running your own practice is, is certainly very rewarding, uh, I think maintaining public practice uh, at least as a component uh, is, is crucial and it's beneficial on multiple levels, both for the surgeon, uh, for the new trainees as well as for the public. So I think uh, whilst uh, I did most of my training in a, in a public setting, uh, essentially, it was the patients of the public hospital that allowed me to do all of the learning uh, under guidance and supervision, of course. And uh, we certainly have a responsibility following the completion of our training to give back to the public and provide a public service to patients. Uh, in addition, it's it's incredibly rewarding for the actual surgeon or, or practitioner themselves in that um This is now my opportunity to give back in terms of teaching as well. Uh, so all the important lessons that my mentor was passed on to me, uh, I now have an opportunity to, to feed back to the current juniors. And finally is, is the personal benefit that I get from it. And that is one of ongoing, uh, education, uh, and camaraderie with my colleagues, typically, uh, public. Uh, practices or public hospitals have large units for example uh, our hospital has approximately 20 surgeons 20 orthopedic surgeons on it Uh, we have regular uh, meetings where we uh, essentially audit all of our work we check our x-rays we discuss them Uh, we talk about new methods of treating things we talk about alternative surgical techniques and and this ongoing education both informally and formally is absolutely critical uh, to keeping your skills sharp
1: well, look, that's a great way, I think, to, um, to, to highlight the importance of, uh, of ongoing learning and being in an environment where, mm-hmm. you know, you're constantly growing because uh, the world's a rapidly changing place and we need to keep our finger on the pulse and no more would that be in the area of medicine. So um, now to wrap things up and perhaps to, uh, to maybe just to consolidate, um, what three take-home messages would you uh, give to our listeners at Backchat?
2: Sure. Um, given been talking about heel pain, I'll focus it on that. Uh, so, message number one for our for our listeners would be: uh, patients suffering from heel pain should seek attention promptly in order to obtain, first of all, the correct diagnosis and have the correct treatment implemented as early as possible. As we've mentioned, it is crucial to not allow this to go from an acute type thing to a chronic. Uh, pain which is much harder to treat uh, and this will give the patients the best chance of achieving symptom uh, resolution without surgery. Uh, number two would be that the mainstay uh, for most causes of heel pain, the mainstay of treatment uh, and particularly plantar fasciitis is non-surgical or conservative therapy but conservative therapy doesn't mean uh, essentially doing nothing. Uh, in fact conservative therapy can be more involved, more labour intensive and, and uh, Uh, more time consuming uh, than the surgical procedure and number three is that don't forget that uh, 90 to 95 percent of patients with plantar fasciitis will experience resolution of their symptoms within 12 months of diagnosis given they have the correct treatment applied patients and compliance with this treatment protocol is essential and finally surgery should be considered only if uh, appropriate non-operative therapy has failed
1: well, Anthony, what do you reckon? Yeah, great podcast. Some really good information in there. And uh, Sasha, was a, he knows his stuff, that's for sure.
0: You know, when we started Backchat, I never thought we'd go to this sort of level, in all honesty. You know, to go to a level where we're dealing with an orthopedic surgeon, you know, doing his craft and sharing the knowledge like that, you know, it's something which, when we started this, I never perceived would go to this sort of level in depth, you know. It's um, absolutely fantastic. Sasha, thanks so much.
2: Thank you both very much. I uh, enjoyed I enjoyed the podcast uh, immensely. Thank you. Excellent.
0: Now, Sasha's orthopedic practice is based in East Melbourne. However, both his consulting and operating activities do extend out to the eastern as well as the western suburbs of Melbourne. His extensive fellowship training allows him to assess and manage all lower limb conditions, including acute injuries, as well as chronic conditions and deformity correction. For contact details and further information, please visit www.sascharushan.com. Dot com.au. That's S-A-S-H-A-R-O-S-H-A-N.com.au. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like the show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat
1: podcast. This has been a production of theWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash the wellness couch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.